Good afternoon and welcome to the Brussels Chicago Riga Summit. Landmark Summit. Warmly welcome all of you at the NATO headquarters. Our 25th, 17th, first summit meeting of the 21st century. Hello and welcome to NATO Summit Behind the Scenes, the podcast where we explore the machinery that goes into a NATO summit. I'm your host, Bruce. And I'm your host, Mariana. And together, we're speaking to people from inside and outside of NATO about all the work they do surrounding a summit. Before we introduce our first guest, you might be wondering, what is a summit? I know I'm wondering that. Right? Well, in a nutshell, a summit is a gathering of the leaders of NATO's 30 member countries. The summit serves as a forum for the North Atlantic Council, NATO's principal decision-making body, to meet at its highest political level, that is, at the level of heads of state and government. Summits provide an opportunity for the heads of state and government to evaluate and provide strategic direction for NATO's activities. In the past, summits have been held at historic moments to introduce a new policy, welcome a new member into the alliance, or launch major initiatives and reinforce partnerships. So far, so good. But uh, why and how do we organize these meetings and what actually happens at them? To answer these questions, we invited Steve Durden, NATO's head of protocol and events. Steve has worked at NATO for more than nine years and has been involved in the past five summits. Sounds like the perfect guest to answer our questions. Welcome, Steve. Thank you for coming. Yeah, welcome and thanks for having me. Um, So Mariana just told our listeners that you're the head of protocol and events. So to get us started, can you just give us a short explanation of what that means? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, very good question. Um, I'm indeed the head of the protocol and events team, which is a part of what we call in here the council secretariat, which is headed by my boss, the chief of protocol. Mm -hmm. Um, We have three teams. Uh, One team is dealing with the organization of the, I'm not going to say daily, but weekly council meetings. So the the usual council meetings we have. And that's with the ambassadors from the NATO Indeed, countries. absolutely, at ambassadorial level. Uh, then we have one team that does committee coordination and ensures uh, information flow between the different committees and the North Atlantic Council at that level of the ambassadors. And then the third team is the uh, protocol and events team, which I'm heading. Very small team. Uh, besides me, there's three more colleagues doing, uh, doing uh, our job. And we deal actually with the uh, outgoing visits of the Secretary General and the Deputy Secretary General to other nations that can be partner nations or or allied nations. We deal with their incoming trips, so anything at ambassadorial level and above. So ambassadors visiting the Secretary General, ministers, usually ministers of defense, ministers of foreign affairs, and then heads of state and government. So when these come to visit the NATO Secretary General or the Deputy we do the practical arrangement uh, of the of the visit in coordination with the different services involved, such as security and the media services. That's uh, the main chunk of our work. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from that, when the North Atlantic Council at that level of ambassadors, when they all travel together and they go abroad, we fully take on board the organization of those trips, mm-hmm. those council trips. And then uh, one of my main tasks is, let's say, the project management of the summits that we do here at NATO HQ, but also abroad. So that's in a nutshell what our team does with those four people. So, mm-hmm. Okay, so you're very involved at the summit then. Yeah, very much so. So, um, yeah, to, uh, to explain it in a nutshell, um, when we organize a summit, we have what we call the NATO Summit Task Force. That's a group of people who have their usual and daily jobs in this building from conference services, from press and media, from security, Mm -hmm. um, who we will all pull together into a task force to basically organize this summit. 
we are a one part of that being being protocol and taking care of the protocol aspects but we also had that team so my boss is the director of the of the task force and i'm just uh, i'm the one who's assisting him on this and making sure it actually all happens um so basically we manage that that task force mm -hmm. okay and how does a summit day look like for you usually a, a summit day itself is actually not the most stressful of days i feel i mean that's when when everything comes together so the 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 bulk of the work has happened in the the weeks the days the months right. before mm -hmm. uh the day of the event is of course exciting but for me at least slightly less stressful if we've done our work right things should run run uh, quite okay so uh, a normal day would look like we we determine a, an opening of the of the venue. Let's say we say to the to the nations, as of a certain time, you are free to arrive. That's basically when me and and my boss would be standing at. We don't have a red carpet. We have a blue carpet <laughs> yeah. in NATO. At the end of the blue carpet, receiving those heads of state and government arriving to the building, we explain them briefly what we're going to do, and we escort them into the building, as of which they are free to do what they want. And at a certain point, we will gather them and then the whole, let's call it a show, will start. Mm -hmm. Usually we have some kind of ceremonial elements at the beginning, some official welcoming by the secretary general so that he has individually seen and have a picture individually with every single one of those heads of state and government. Mm -hmm. um, then we try to take a big family portrait, not easy in, in times of COVID, as you can mm -hmm. imagine. And then we have, in this case, for this year, only one session, but sometimes this event goes uh, goes over over multiple days and we have multiple meetings as well at, at sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, apart from that, we make sure that there's a whole uh, bilateral uh, meeting area that's up and running where basically all these heads of state and government can individually, bilaterally meet with each other. And then apart from that, we also have a very, very big media operation. So we have a few hundred and sometimes on a normal in normal uh, circumstances over a thousand media representatives coming to the NATO HQ mm -hmm. to report on this event and to report on the press conferences that these heads of state and government and actually give at conclusion of uh, of the event yeah sounds stressful so there's there's just a few moving pieces that you have to <laughs> keep track of it sounds like indeed indeed and how long does that take to put together well, I've, I'm 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 asked a lot of the times, like, how much time do you want? How much time do you need? I always say the ideal planning timeline for uh, organizing an event of this scale would be a year between wow. the selection of which nation or if it's at HQ, which uh, which nation will organize the summit or where do you want to do it to the actual uh, execution. The ideal timeline would indeed be uh, be a year. Mm -hmm. So basically one summit ends and another one begins. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I must say, I must say that if we would look historically, we would probably, on average, had one summit every every second year or every eighteen months uh, for the past few years. And as you mentioned rightfully in your introduction, there's different reasons why we organize summits, and now mm -hmm. we've had mm -hmm. quite a few reasons in a row, which means mm -hmm. that we've done a the the previous summits were almost back to back. We had one in 17, one in 18, one in 19. We skipped 2020. For obvious reasons. <laughs> we'll have one this year. We'll uh, have one in 2022. We'll have one in 2023. And most likely, as it's the anniversary year of NATO, we'll also have one in 2024. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that makes me think like the idea of one summit ends and another begins basically the day after the summit and like when do you start actually planning for the next one? Does that just kind of hit the ground running? Um, yeah, well, I can give you a very concrete example for this <laughs> year. I've been asked uh, together with then uh, some members of our task force 
to go and do what we call a recce uh, visit or a, a an advanced visit of potential venues mm. for the 2022 summit and and the 2023 summit before the summer break. Oh, okay. Wow. So uh, I just we just sent to the to the nations concerned that the dates that we can actually make ourselves available to travel to those cities and mm-hmm. go and look at what they are proposing. Yeah. So you're planning pretty pretty far in advance, at least for these. Yeah. Events. That is, I must admit, from my past experience, that is quite exceptional. It's ideal, mm. but it is exceptional. <laughs> Usually, we've had uh, a lot less time to do these events. Yeah. Okay. And how do you make sure that everything runs smoothly? Are you ever nervous that things won't go well on the day of the event? Um, I think there's a difference between being nervous and excited. I'm definitely <laughs> excited when these things uh, happen. Um, I must admit, after after doing these for quite a while, the one thing I've learned is becoming nervous or becoming stressed, even when things go wrong, doesn't solve much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's actually key to try and remain calm and, and deal with the situation as it as it faces uh, as you face it. Um, yeah, uh, not too nervous, but definitely excited. <laughs> Another question that we wanted to ask was about how you got into this job in the first place. Um, I heard a rumor that you were a bodyguard <laughs> to begin with. Uh, I think that's super fascinating. Maybe we want to know us. more. Yeah, we that. want to know more. <laughs> yeah. How does one go from bodyguard to protocol? Yeah, it's probably a quite atypical um, route that I took to come to the yeah. position that I am at now. So as, as you mentioned correctly, that was my previous profession. So uh, let's say I started quite young in the Belgian Federal Police. Mm where I worked the first three years in different services. You know, uh, the first thing I did for a year was um, crowd and riot control, you know, football matches, prison <laughs> prison riots, those kinds of things. Wow. And uh, riot control for football matches might be important in Belgium <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Depending on results of games, maybe. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, a second year I did a service which takes care of... Um, escorting money, uh, artwork that's transferred over roads. So we've mm-hmm. escorted that with police vehicles. The third year... Uh, Just to jump in there, do you have any like interesting pieces of art that you <laughs> accompanied? Like, I don't know, Mona Lisa somewhere? <laughs> I think that she just stays at the Louvre. Yeah, <laughs> those, those kinds of things or diamonds, but, yeah. but they're usually uh, tucked away nice and safely. Yeah, of course, I guess. Truck, so. Yeah. Um, then the third year of my career, I did, we moved what we call a level three prisoner. So the most dangerous prisoners, then you're a team of six people moving one prisoner from one prison to the other or to a courthouse. Then the next five years, I actually went into uh, what we call close protection. So I was a bodyguard at the, for the Royal Family of Belgium. Um, after which I made the career switch to do the same job actually for NATO. So I started, uh, in the close protection team of the former Secretary General, so Secretary General Rasmussen, started in his close protection team. And actually, when when preparing his trips, sometimes we worked together with what I now uh, uh, head is the task force mm-hmm. for preparing trips of the, of the Secretary General. And the former chief of protocol said, once I have a vacant position in my team, mm-hmm. I would really like you to work in my protocol team, uh, which happened then uh, a year later where I started actually with my first baby steps uh, in the uh, Wales Summit in 2014 mm-hmm. um, and made the career switch, which I haven't regretted since. I've done that for four years and I'm, I'm, almost, I'm heading the protocol and events team now for a year almost. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
So indeed an unconventional path, but yeah. we love to hear about those. Even, even yeah. though one would think that there's a lot of uh, contradictions between security and protocol, there's also a lot of similarities. You yeah. need to have that broad view. You need to be, you know, you need to have that, that eye for detail, be mm -hmm. flexible, be, uh, you know, uh, resilient to stress at moments. So uh, even though it's it's a quite, it's a different angle, you do need the same, uh, the same traits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very adventurous. <laughs> yeah. Another point that we wanted to talk about was your work with the Secretary General, um, because we understand that you work closely with him and coordinating the summit. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that and how his own ideas are incorporated into the event? That's, uh, I must admit, that's a difficult question. I mean, yes, indeed, through our structures of the task force and, and, and JC, my boss and myself uh, heading that group, uh, we try to coordinate the desires from the divisions, from the nations, but also definitely from the Secretary General. Um, we've been lucky enough to now organize our third summit under, under the leadership of this Secretary General, which gives us the luxury of having his trust. Mm. So in most, of the, uh, in most regards, the Secretary General lets us work, on, especially on the practicalities, mm -hmm. uh, and we go for him for, those, uh, for the advice that is really crucial and the elements in the program that are very, very visible, especially to the media. So for those specific points, like what does the backdrop look uh, for his press conference? Uh, what does he need to do uh, when he greets these leaders? Does he, especially now in COVID, does he give them a handshake mm -hmm. or an elbow bump or doesn't he do anything? Um, how do we proceed together? How does he take the lead over 30 other heads of state and government to bring them together and stand stand together in a family photo? Those are the things that we closely need to ask his advice on. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, I must admit, uh, after these three, uh, three summits that were quite successful, he gives us very much, uh, very much the trust. We sometimes present him with what we're doing. We try to present him with options at times, mm -hmm. but uh, due to the very short time delays, <laughs> especially with this, this summit, summit yeah. it's not always possible to present him with options. So, one of his last reactions was, "This looks like uh, an episode of uh, Yes, Prime Minister." Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we're basically uh, we presented him with this is what it is, and thank God he was happy. But yeah, we just need your signature, sir. Yeah, <laughs> Um, another SecGen-related question that we had was about protocol at the summit in terms of you have 30 heads of state and government. Um, I noticed when I walk outside the building, we have the 30 NATO flags all in alphabetical order. Uh, but how do you decide like where the heads of state and government stand when they're taking their family photo, what all the protocol is around that? There is a strict uh, order of protocol uh, between the heads of state and government. Um in our case, it's it's quite simple. We have heads of state and heads of government. Mm -hmm. Already there, there's a distinction. So heads of state are placed at a higher level than heads of government. Then how do we distinguish in those two groups? Is there we look at seniority? So who's been serving the longest? And mm -hmm. that one is the high, that one has the higher seniority compared to the others. So if we would work based on a strict protocol order, and that's something, for instance, that we use when we do arrivals. Mm -hmm. Let's say that we have a time slot where everybody wants to arrive in a certain half hour, then we would only then we would look at pure uh, seniority. Yeah, who those. gets the first okay. pick. Indeed. <laughs> and, and funny enough, uh, the ones who are, let's say, higher placed or feel that they are more important than others will try to come later than others. <laughs> I mean, no surprises there, you know. Indeed. Um, yeah, it makes it sound really as if protocol is an art as well as a science, we could say. Absolutely. That's a very good definition. Yeah. Yeah. And do you do you like it? 
Is it something that you really enjoy doing? Yeah, I, I, I like it a lot because it's 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 a daily challenge. I mean, I've done now a few summits. Uh, every single one is different. You also work with a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds. Um, it poses a lot of challenges, but it also gives you a, a lot of... Um, it's also very rewarding, let's say, mm -hmm. in, a, in a different regard. So, yeah, definitely good choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a question just about the the interesting circumstances in which we're having this summit, you know, they're different than we've ever had before. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the challenge of, you know, making sure that everyone is safe at the summit with COVID precautions and, and how that factored into your planning? Yeah, it's it, this summit has been particularly challenging to organize, not only because of the extreme short delay. Uh, I don't know if you know, but the actual decision to hold the summit on the day that we're now having it was taken two months prior, two and a half months prior to the actual date. So okay. uh, the timeline was extremely <laughs> short. Uh, and on top of that, uh, indeed, the the, uh, the uncertainty surrounding the COVID situation put an extra layer of complexity uh, on the event. So what we've tried to do is we tried to implement as much security measures as we can to keep people safe. And then, of course, not a single, not one single measure is is foolproof or is 100%. So we look at it like we say, like the Swiss cheese. Mm. If you Swiss cheese has holes, if you just put enough layers of them on top of each other, hopefully we'll cover all the holes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, and basically what we've done is um, we build the summit as big as we would for a bigger event mm -hmm. in order to reduce the number of people uh, in, in every single venue. We are extremely trying to reduce the presence, not only from the incoming delegations, but also from the, the presence of our, our own staff and members of permanent delegations who are in the building. So we're actually asking everybody, and that's also one of our tasks, to collect mm -hmm. those hundreds of people that are coming to the event and actually verify whether it's a, it's a justified request for them to be on site during mm -hmm. the event. Mm -hmm. And what we'll also be doing with the thanks to our colleagues of our of, of uh, executive management is we'll actually distribute uh, face masks, FFP2 face masks to all participants from the media side and from our own uh, from our from our own uh, staff okay. during the event. So we are doing everything we possibly can to keep everybody safe. Um, we'd like to ask you one final question. So uh, you've been involved in the last five summits. Uh, so I'm sure you've had some fun or crazy anecdotes uh, that you could share with us. What would you say is your most memorable one? During these summits, to be honest, uh, one of the most enjoyable moments without taking a specific one is that when uh, just when we do these, what I mentioned before, when we do these ceremonial elements, when we're going for a family photo or for, we're going for individual handshakes, That's when we actually get those uh, 30 heads of state and government. And sometimes when we have bigger events, even up to 50, we mm -hmm. put them in a room all together with nobody else. These people are mm -hmm. so used to having, you know, their close protection around, their chief of protocol around, their interpreters around. And that's that one moment where we get them all together. We even had them together on a bus for a bus ride. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that's a very particular atmosphere. And it's, yeah. it's sometimes when you're standing there. One can get used to everything, but it does feel a bit surreal to be surrounded mm. by 30 heads of state and government and, and not the least <laughs> for the NATO nations. Uh, standing in, in that group, you know, just with me and my boss is, is a very, very peculiar feeling. Yeah. And it does create sometimes some funny moments where they actually, when they can really, it feels like they can be there themselves for a yeah. moment. <laughs> There's no media, no cameras around. And and then you see that they're actually just people as well. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
Wow, that must be yeah, pretty interesting. Sure. I'm a little jealous. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Uh, it was great to learn more about your job and how it relates to the summit. Yeah. Super. Thanks a lot. Thank you for sharing all these super interesting details with us. It was it was very interesting for me. Very informative as yes, well as interesting. Exactly. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to our NATO Summit podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode where we will continue to demystify everything about the NATO Summit. And a special thanks to all our colleagues at the NATO Studio for their help recording this podcast. Make sure to subscribe on your preferred platform so you don't miss any episodes in the future. Bye! Bye.